Welcome to Humans of Fintech, the podcast where I share the inspiring stories of diverse leaders bringing equity to financial systems through fintech. I'm Nicole Kasperson. In this episode, I'm joined by Yoni Asaya, the CEO and co-founder of eToro. In this episode, Yoni and I discuss the roller coaster that is his life as the leader of one of the biggest fintech companies around his passion for technology-driven finance before the word fintech was really ever coined, why we could all use more long-term thinking and patience in today's macro environment. We discuss the biggest lesson he learned from his dinner with Warren Buffett and his take on the future of crypto and why it is not going anywhere. I'm so excited to be joined by Yoni on this episode, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. Yoni, welcome to Humans of Fintech. I am so excited to have you here. You know, I debuted Humans of Fintech, the first season, first episode, with the CEO of eToro US, Lule de Messe, and someone I admire. So it only feels fitting to have you here to help me kick off season four of this podcast show. So welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me, Nicole. Yeah, of course. Well, thinking about your background and really how it influences your career, your father was an entrepreneur. You had an interest in finance early on. You've studied computer science and technology, and you have this unique passion for socializing, investing experiences. It is a lot that you have done so far. But which one of these passions or experiences has maybe laid the foundation for you as a fintech leader and why? I think I've, I've been passionate very early on into both technology and finance. Uh, so I started trading when I was about 13. Uh, very lucky to have my father as a mentor teaching me about capital markets. And I started programming uh, very, very early on uh, around the same age as well. And I've always been passionate about that intersection between finance and technology. I love the concepts of the internet. So as an older Gen Y, uh, you know, I remember in my youth, uh, you know, roughly high school sort of connecting to the internet through modems, BBSs, etc. And then on the other hand, I love capital markets who are also about the same connections, right? Connecting capital markets and money everywhere around the world. So I love these combination of these large systems that connect people from all around the world. And when we started eToro, you know, it was interesting because we really started eToro with a vision of opening the global markets for everyone to trade and invest in a simple and transparent way. And that was before the term fintech actually existed. So for a long period of time after we did our, our first raise, we always had these debates on the board. Are we a finance company or are we a technology company? Um, and I, I still remember these discussions and debates about the difference between being a financial institution or being a product technology-led company. So you're happy to have landed on fintech, right? Because you get to be both. Like, how did that conversation end? Were you like, fintech guys, we're here. This is our space. I think so. Again, this was pre-fintech, right? The term fintech, I think, started in 2011 or 12. This was, we founded the company in 2007. 
A lot of the dialogues back then about the difference between finance and technologies, product and technology-led companies focus really on, on the user experience and on customer journeys and looking at the data of how customers engage with our product. And when you think of financial institutions, they're much more backend focused and focused on KPIs of financials, the assets of customers, the size of the accounts, the revenue generation, the unit economics. And we very early on had these debates and realized we're both. We're a finance company and a technology company. And gradually, as fintech as an industry started emerging and growing, we were like, oh, that's what we were saying this whole time. Fintech is basically financial institutions, which are product technology-led companies. Well, then how perfect that fintech uh, became a term that now we all, well, most people, right? Almost most people know and know today. And also just a unique balance there with understanding that technology really has this ability to really fuel and better that user experience for the finance world. I think that people element is what gets me excited about the space, too. And I know that you also, at one point, you co-founded and became the development manager of Y-Tech Communications and CD-Ride. And I found this so interesting about your background. It is an on-ride video system that records people while they ride roller coasters. Hilarious. <laughs> that must have been a ton of fun. But is this the moment when you unlocked your passion for technology, meeting, user experience? I was a programmer in the RB first. So after high school, uh, where I was actually sort of uh, trading capital markets during the dot-com bubble era, right? Sort of the rise of the internet. Then I got uh, uh, drafted uh, as a programmer to the uh, IDF in Israel, to the intelligence core. And then when I was about, I think, 22, I co-founded CD-Ride together with colleagues uh, of mine, uh, from the unit. And this was very early on. This was my first startup. I've learned a lot in that startup. We actually, eventually that startup was sold to Kodak. Uh, we installed in places like Paramount uh, and Universal video cameras on roller coasters, which uh, transmitted vi the video of the entire roller coaster so people could come and actually see their video and buy a DVD of their ride. But my passion has always been to capital markets. This was for me a great experience as, a, as an entrepreneur, as a co-founder, learning how to develop systems commercially. But the only thing that relates, I think, from that startup to my passion to capital markets is capital markets are definitely like a roller coaster. <laughs> it was a metaphor. It was a metaphor for what you were about to, to embark <laughs> exactly. on next, right? You're like, roller, technology for roller coasters, technology for finance, basically the same thing. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, and in 2007, right, you you founded eToro with, with your brother, right? And I think it's so interesting to have that sense of like fintech is coming, kind of like what you were saying. You almost were able to find your sense of belonging in an industry that hadn't been really coined yet. But take us back to that moment where you felt like fintech or finance technology would make sense for, for you to really find your sense of belonging. So I think that this was like mid 
stage of the internet, right? This is really the beginning of Facebook and Twitter and social networking. And we saw uh, sort of the emergence of internet experiences, whether it's social networking, games on the internet started to emerge in a mass, tens of millions of customers. And when we looked at capital markets, when we looked at the world of trading and investing, our view has always been this needs to be a huge place where people from all around the world can share and collaborate together, can learn from each other. So when we started eToro, it was really about how do we hack the user experience? How do we create something that's super simple for people to access capital markets? We used to say it should be as easy to buy Amazon stock as it is to buy on Amazon. Uh, that's sort of where we started. And then we realized, and this was a lot of brainstorming together with my older brother, Ronen, who comes from an industrial design and a product background, that it's not only about making the experience and the, and the onboarding simpler, but it's also about how do I make decisions? How do people actually decide where to invest, how to invest? And then sort of was the aha moment of let's connect the concept of social networking so people can actually see what other people are trading, follow them to see what they're writing about the markets and communicate with them and automatically copy the most successful investors on the platform. And that for us was really the combination of how do you take that utility of social networking where people can collaborate and communicate with one another and connect that to an educational platform where people can learn and then automatically copy the top investors in the network. And a movement you have helped progress forward, right? I think it's important to have these fintech elements, right? And these these apps to be so ingrained in the, the culture that we're seeing today, right? It must be so wild for you to, you know, starting in 2007, fast forward to, to today, to 2022, and to see how much this conversation has become of even just mainstream, right? Everyday, everyday culture is a wild thing. Was there any particular event that for you really illustrated this change that we're seeing and the, the socializing of investing? Well, we've seen quite a bit over the past almost 16 years. One of the most significant events for us that showed the importance of more fintech in that aspect was uh, the global financial crisis in 2008. For us as entrepreneurs in the finance world, to see that in some cases, everything sort of stops to work and the backend stops to work was for us an aha moment of this is, it's so important that technology leads this space and not vice versa. We actually looked at screens that froze during the global financial crisis where people didn't even know if the next morning your bank would be opened, you'd be, be able to access money in the banks. And that for us really enabled sort of to progress faster into building more technology for users to be able to manage their investments online. I think during uh, probably 2011, 12 is where the social element in eToro really became the front and center of what eToro is because we realized people can really learn from each other. But it really took another eight years 
before we saw sort of the explosion in the rise of retail investors all around the world, right? So 2020, so it took us about, you know, from 2007 to 2018, uh, 11 years to bring in the first 10 million registered users. And then since then, we brought in another 20 million registered users. So we've seen that inflection in the interest of retail investors and the world sort of catching up to what we've always envisioned, which is more people entering capital markets and interesting both in the stock markets and crypto markets. You've got a ton of patience if you think about it, you know. You started something in 2007 and you were patient, right? You were patient waiting for that moment, right? That that cultural shift that you talked us through just now, right? I mean, what's your, just like for as an entrepreneur, what is your secret to being consistent and patient over the years? Because that is some time before you, you know, that that moment, I feel like, happened, that boom, if you will. And I feel like entrepreneurs are always waiting for that, like, boom moment. I think it's understanding that one's success is never a straight line. Like, it takes a, a, a long time and effort to build overnight success. And that's something I, I'm always trying to also talk to, you know, managers at eToro as well as our customers, is we need to, to think very long term, whether it's about investing or whether it's about how we manage our business. Uh, we need to think long-term, and it takes time sometimes to, for very big visions to fold, right? I'm talking today about eToro 2050. Uh, how does the world look like at 2050? What does that mean on eToro 2030? So the more you try to look into the future, and the more you believe that the future is inevitable, you're able to sort of gradually and, con and continuously build towards that future. I'll just add to that, it is important to remember when you run a startup, as long as you make sure you have financing, uh, whether it's through revenues generated by your customers or whether it's by having great investors on your side, then you're able to grow your business alongside building your long-term vision. And we've continuously built the business and have grown the business, you know, from $5 million revenues in 2008 to $60 million revenues in 2016 to $1.2 billion in revenues in 2021, and continuously build the business while making sure we're focused on our customers, we give better products, better service, better access to capital markets, to our customers, understanding that, again, the, the future is inevitable, that finance is becoming digital, that most money in the world is going to eventually be managed on digital platforms like eToro, and we need to grow together with our customers and with the industry. Yeah, well said. I'm, you know, in in our world, especially here in America, honestly, the the short term mentality and applying it to like everything that we do is so common. And, you know, people want to grow fast. They want to raise the money fast. They want to get the millions, millions of users fast. And I think what you said there is that you know, we have to remember as anyone building anything that overnight success isn't real. It, it takes years and years and patience. And, and you have demonstrated that. I mean, this long path mentality that you have, and I, I love it. I like preach that as well. Is that kind of what helps 
fuel and ground you during moments like our current environment where the crypto narrative is so polarizing and, you know, the, the, the media frenzy is crazy? You know, how do you kind of hold to your values and your core and, and help your team feel that during the hard times? I think it's exactly that. It's, it's understanding that we are on, on the right path. It's looking also at perspective. So when we look at perspective, it's not just the last quarter. Let's look at the last three years of growth. Uh, so it doesn't matter whether one quarter is good or bad, as long as we look at the last three years and they were terrific. And that's what we need to build for to make sure that the next three years are terrific as well. And again, bear markets, you know, within fintech, within capital markets in fintech or crypto markets, and then we, instead of bear markets, say crypto winter, we've seen these before. We've seen market cycles before. We understand how the markets work. Uh, again, I, I was sort of born into the dot-com bubble and saw the dot-com bubble burst. We saw the global financial crisis in 2008. These cycles always happen in capital markets. In crypto winter, this is my fourth crypto winter. Uh, we <laughs> launched Bitcoin on the platform, I think, a month before Mt. Gox collapsed. Uh, uh, and, and that was, you know, a lot of explaining to people, what is Bitcoin? Why Bitcoin? Why does it make sense? And then we launched it at $1,200 and it went all the way back down, I think, to $150. People thought it was dead. Not like today. Today, anybody really who understands a bit crypto, a bit Bitcoin, nobody thinks it's going away. Back then, that crypto winter was like, okay, we tried something, we experimented. Every, I don't think anybody around me thought Bitcoin was going to survive Mount Gox. And then 2017 came and we saw that huge explosion of interest around Ethereum and other crypto assets. And we saw that growth and then 2018 came and we saw another crash with Bitcoin going from $20,000 to $3,000. So it doesn't surprise me when we see bubbles and bursts. Bubbles and bursts are a core feature of the markets. They're not a bug in the markets. It's how the markets work. And as investors, we need to understand, and, and that's what we're trying to convey also to, to our users, but also, again, because this is our business to us as, as management, is you need to remember things take time. You need to think long term. And you don't need to be too excited about the irrationality of markets, right? I like quoting around that uh, Benjamin Graham uh, about the irrationality of markets and the craziness of markets. But if you're investing in a business eventually in the stock of the business and the business does well, it doesn't matter really what the markets think about at a certain point in time on that business. What really is important is the longevity and success of that business. You are bringing the roller coaster metaphor really to life, right? You're like, I've experienced this roller coaster, guys. We're going to be okay. I appreciate that actually about like all of eToro's content. It's very, you know, even some of the things that like Callie Cox puts, puts out here in the US, you know, it's very. Uh, you know, guys, let's remember to keep our head on our shoulders, right? And not get too bogged down in, in, in the madness and remember who we are and our values. I got to ask about the uh, three-hour dinner with Warren Buffett. I feel like some of the things we're talking about, maybe are some takeaways you could get from a figure like him. I think people, most people would 
love to have 60 seconds with him, let alone three hours. What's the biggest takeaway uh, for you from from that those moments uh, with him and any learning lessons you can share? I think first it's funny because we came and this was like a, the crypto dinner, right? Justin Sun uh, won the the eBay uh, lunch with him, which eventually became became dinner, and everybody around the table were crypto entrepreneurs trying to convince Buffett that Bitcoin and crypto made sense. And I have to say that then we failed miserably, um, he, he, which didn't surprise me because I read Buffett before and I know his view on gold is as negative uh, as it is on crypto. But there, there's like a couple of aha moments. For me, this was my, one of the most important and interesting dinners or sessions in my life. And the reason is, obviously, Buffett's considered one of the top investors in history. And our business is helping people invest in the markets. And he has always referred, right, to the intelligent investor and sort of is quoted on saying the similar things, which is, you know, investing is simple, but invest in what you understand, invest in companies, right, understand their business and their companies, figure out if those companies have a moat and take a, a long-term view of your investment. And the reason that was very impactful for me is because on eToro, we have the popular investors, right? You can actually see people's performance over time. And then I realized like the, the reason Buffett is Buffett is this 40, 50 year track record with him. And I came back from the dinner and we started actually teaching our customers value investing. And what I realized back then is my entire life was around growth investing, right? And, and sort of very speculative, forward-looking investing. I understand how to read financials, but I'm more oriented toward the inevitable future, right? Whether it's crypto and blockchain or whether it's tech stocks, I've always been tilted toward future value versus present value. And it made so much sense what he spoke that, that it actually sort of forced me to go into value investing, to diversify myself into a strategy that's not my comfort zone, and also to understand that beauty that we're building a community of global investors that actually believe that they can invest, that it's simple to invest, they learn and, and, and understand how to read the financial statements of the companies that they're investing in, and that every year that passes with eToro, we had another track record of millions of people's trading on eToro, and that in itself becomes more and more powerful and sort of adds to the exponent growth and value of eToro over time because suddenly we have people with five-year track record and 10-year track record, and you know, in 10 years we'll have people with 20-year track record. And really sort of he pushed me to understand how valuable it is what we do in eToro. And what a perfect and just probably very fueling experience, right? To have someone like Warren Buffett make you feel like, yeah, okay, this thing that I'm doing and I'm building is is right. And, you know, thinking of that longevity too, for me, I've always been so interested in Bitcoin, in the crypto space because of the the mission, right? The mission to be able to create sustainable and scalable frameworks to bring global universal basic income right and inclusion to our world. And I knew you established the Good Dollar Foundation, uh, which is a nonprofit 
aimed at this mission. So what were some of the thoughts around establishing Good Dollar in terms of kind of matching this longevity mission that that you have so deeply rooted in the core of eToro? Interestingly enough, the same sort of way that we built eToro way before fintech existed, I started writing about Good Dollar, which was a transparent, decentralized internet currency in 2008 before Bitcoin. And back then, it wasn't really about the technology or blockchain. I, I didn't, I wasn't able to sort of really figure out the technology part of it. But again, because of the global financial crisis, it seemed very apparent that currency markets are broken. And that even that basic thing of currency doesn't really trade 24-7 on a platform where everything is transparent. And I started writing about this in parallel to the concept uh, that eventually I realized is very similar to universal basic income, which is actually the people who need to get more of the interest rate is the people who have the least amount of money, not the most amount of money. So right now, what happens as they increase interest rates, somebody with a million dollars, let's say interest is 5% is getting $50,000 a year, where somebody with $5,000 probably gets like much less even on a percentage basis, right? Because interest sort of is, is magnetic and, and gets higher as you're wealthier and you get it on an absolute level. And I started writing about it and then, you know, 2010, 11, uh, we started seeing Bitcoin and people, because they saw me writing about digital currencies before, sent me Bitcoin. Obviously, for me, this was the same aha moment. As I mentioned before, when I was young, I looked at the internet and capital markets and fell in love. Like the minute I'd made the, my first transaction in Bitcoin, I was like, this is how all money and all digital assets should work. Decentralized systems, 24-7, nobody controls them. And it always works and you're not reliant on centralized companies to control it. So for me, that was like an immediate aha moment of this is the future of finance, of everything in finance should eventually work like that. It took us a while. Just in 2018, we started actually working on developing the good dollar. After the first crypto rally, we made $390 million revenues in 2018. And I said, okay, we made a lot of money through that process. Let's give some back, let's build a nonprofit. Let's see if we can actually design a cryptocurrency that every person in the world can claim every day. So instead of you having to buy miners in order to mine, but you need to spend money in order to make money uh, or proof of stake where you actually need to have ETH or any staked currency to generate that, what if you build a currency that every person in the world can claim every day? And then that is basically the mining process of that cryptocurrency. And we developed it as smart contracts in Ethereum. It's amazing to see we have half a million people using it now. Uh, it's actually used in uh, Nigeria and Venezuela and Bangladesh where you'd assume people need it the most. And people open, everybody in the world can open a free wallet. Uh, we consider this a long-term research and experiment to show that you can build value, that the community can actually create the token, claim the token and create the value for the token through the means of both exchange and value 
as well as philanthropy. And in that case, we, Toro, we stake our own money into a smart contract that instead of generating us the interest rate, takes that interest rate and, and actually distributes into the smart contract to generate that universal basic income. So it's taking that ex exact concept of instead of the wealthy getting the interest rate, enabling them to stake that, to invest that, so other people can enjoy that interest rate. I, I still think this is very early stages of that concept, but I, I have no doubt the same way that we looked at fintech, and I still think we're the infancy of, of where fintech is. Uh, financial services companies are 99% of the market cap. Fintech is 1%. That's going to flip and change. It's going to be 90% fintech, 10% fina old financial services. Crypto and blockchain are going to disrupt everything in the digital asset space. All assets in the world become digital. And I think these new ways of enabling form of philanthropy to thrive and create economies of value, I think that's definitely something that we're going to see scale up. But again, they're all dependent on each other and are all going to take time to sort of eat up the traditional world. All of it is connected, right? And I love that you have established a platform that touches all of these elements, right? Especially the, you know, you have this um, inherent passion to to not only build in in technology to make finance better for everyone, but also to give back to the community. You know, not not all founders and CEOs of companies raise or, or make a lot of money and then say, hey, we should create something to give this back, you know? And I mean, is there anyone who has maybe helped you feel like you could leverage your, you know, your company and, and the good that you can do with eToro to give back to your community? Like, is there anyone that inspires you to do that? Or where does that passion come from? I have to say, by the way, a lot of entrepreneurs who are friends of mine, uh, who I've known, and I think when you look at the, you know, people, whether it's like Buffett, or Zuckerberg, uh, a lot of the most successful entrepreneurs today, they do talk a lot about giving back. Um, for me, it was just how do I funnel that into something that I think could add value where I could add value, where our team could add value, and, and that value could potentially accumulate or compound over time and provide sort of data and research, and we work with academics around it. But again, our view on that is like we're not, we're trying not to too much sort of publicize and advertise and, and, and run around it. We just want to really see that it works and it becomes a bit of a grassroots movement, like we're suddenly seeing places like Nigeria. And I think a lot of people, you know, when I talk to them, a lot of entrepreneurs, people who have been able to build a successful business and their wealth, they each try to give in their own space, in their own interest. It's just for each person that interest might be related to their core business or might be sort of completely uh, unrelated to their core business and, and sort of their core interest in business. It's that connectivity again, right? Like if you can do that and it helps fuel, right, the, the core business and helps with the with the data or research or things that you can continue to build, then it's like it's the, the triple win, right? Then you get to 
grow your business, you get to do good, right? And have that social impact and you get to fuel your passions for for helping communities and and others and really frankly the the world at this point um well as we kind of round out this conversation i want to ask you one of my favorite questions i ask all my guests and that is if we need to be the change that we want to see what change do you wish to see in fintech and how do you embody it i love to use the sentence uh, copying from my brother uh, with great power comes great responsibility. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think it is important for larger fintech players, the ones that have been able to build, you know, a large audience and customers, to remember that you know we need to be responsible with our clients. Uh, we need to be super responsible. You know, we're a regulated entity, uh, so we understand very much our our responsibilities to our clients. And I think in general, in fintech, when you deal with customer assets, with customers' money, it's critical that founders, as well as investors in the space, investing in founders in the space, make sure that everybody is as responsible as they should be, especially as they scale their businesses. Well, perfectly lining up my final question for you, Yoni, which is if there is one piece of advice that you would give our listeners, what would it be? And mind you, our listeners are also fintech entrepreneurs like yourself, founders, CEOs. So what advice would you give your your own peers? I would always say related to sort of both entrepreneurship, management uh, and investing, Think long term, manage for the short term as well, but don't never get too upset or too dwelled in the short term as you build the long term. Well said. We love that long path mentality. We could all use a little bit more of it as we grow and scale, especially everyone working in fintech. As you said, we are only 1% right now, guys. We're going to have to just wait until we're 99%. Then things are really going to be booming. But anyways, Yoni, thank you so much for joining me on this episode of Humans of Fintech. It has been so much fun just getting to know you and hearing all your values and and all your advice. I appreciate all of the things that you're working on to help more people just access. Thank you very much. Thank you, Nicole. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode. To hear our next story from another diverse leader, be sure to tune in next week. And if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to our show and give it a five-star rating as it helps our message reach more people who want to find belonging too. 